Hello, my name's James Pikeaway. Welcome to the James Cast and something new. What are you listening to? You're listening to a new feature called Remembering Dubai with Nightline. For about 12 years, I was a talk show radio host here in the UAE. Not only did I teach at Zaid University in the College of Communication and Media Sciences during the day, but at night, I was on the air of Dubai Eye, the host of Nightline. Over 12 years, the program changed, it morphed, it developed, but it always did the same thing. It was a verbal history of the UAE, a verbal history of the moment of the UAE. We talked to people, we did interviews, we did call-ins, and we generally had a great conversation that encapsulated what was going on in this great city. I had a conversation with Dan Marsh, formerly of 92 FM here in Dubai. And he said, James, why don't you create a program where you share some of that history, that remembering of Dubai? And that is how this podcast was born. First episode is uh, a, con- a context, really. The first episode is how did this all get started? How did I really get started on radio in the UAE? And it started on. The Better Mix. It started with Schroeder Evans. And it started with a weekly catch-up show called The Week That Was that we would do Wednesday mornings. Here's the last show we did in June 2006. You're going to enjoy it. It's the start of Remembering Dubai with Nightline. Enjoy. Every Wednesday between 9 and 10, we take a look at the week that was. James Pikeaway joins me from Zayed University and uh, gives up his time uh, absolutely free of charge. So thanks for that, James. We always appreciate hearing your insights into what's going on. It's uh, been a big week. It, giant, giant. The, the handover. You're the out. handover of power in Iraq. Now, they set it down for June the 30th, and they'd been talking about June the 30th mm-hmm. for months and months and months and months. And then... They spike everyone's guns by jumping in there two days early and handing it over, and it was pretty much a peaceful sort of a thing. Yeah, done done very quietly, done, done. Basically, I mean, this is a volatile country. Uh, insurgencies, insurgents are the, is the name of the, that's being used for the people who are waging really a war against uh, the, the governments there, against the U.S. there, against the, the coalition troops there. They, I think they had to do this. They had to do it quickly. They had to do it under uh, very secure circumstances or else it was just a walking target. I mean, the Iraqis on the ground, uh, the the people who are living in the country, mm-hmm. let's not forget, uh, they didn't like Paul Bremer. They no. didn't understand him. He didn't understand them. And they didn't like some of the decisions he'd made. Is this a case of getting Bremer out as soon as possible and getting the real uh, administration in? I, I don't think so. I think his time was up anyway. Uh, I, I really think this was uh, an attempt to not have this made into some kind of a spectacle, do this in a big, open, public uh, way, and uh, set off a car bomb or something. I mean, that, that's just something that no one wanted to happen. Yeah, but if you look at the way they did do it, they did it right in the middle of the very mm-hmm. protected green zone sure. in, in Baghdad. They kind of did it behind closed doors. It was almost like, and if you were a militant, you would think, well, <laughs> they're scared. I, I think they are scared. I mean, in, in all reality, there's up to 60 attacks a day across the country. No one, it, it's hard to distinguish friend from foe. 
if you if you look at pictures and and you listen to uh, reports that are coming out from even soldiers who are there, they're saying, look, this has gone from being uh, small attacks to very large attacks, well organized attacks. Day, it, a lot of a, a lot of problems used to happen at night, dusk till dawn. Now they're happening during the day. This had to be done in this manner. Uh, it's it's a really volatile place, and Alawi's got a lot of work to do uh, to to straighten things out. You have to feel a little bit for Paul Bremer. I mean, he was put in there as the administrator. When he went in there, he was the man with ideas. He was the man with with the plan. You know, the yeah. guy's run twenty marathons in his mm. life. He, he's 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 a hard worker. Uh, he only got just over a year to do what, uh, for example, Douglas MacArthur in Japan got six years. Exactly. Um, and I think that's he, one of his biggest regrets is that he didn't have more time and that he couldn't, in the short time that he had, uh, affect the change that that he was hoping for, such as a, a new constitution. He started with a hiss and a roar, though. I mean, when he went in in May, uh, his first decisions were seen as pretty much disastrous. Mm. He tried to de the government, uh, the, the schools, the universities, uh, pretty much everything had all the Bathurst party members and taken it, it, That's out. astounding numbers if you look at the figures. 400,000 military were, were let go. Uh, they were let go, but not uh, disarmed. No, just let go. 10,000 teachers, 60,000 government civil servants, just let go. So this this caused immense problems because it suddenly it throws a big portion of the country into into economic chaos as they have no money, no job, and nothing better to do. So Paul Bremer basically got there, made an enemy of at least four hundred thousand people, and let them have guns. It's a it's one situation. way of looking at yeah. it. Yeah, that is that is obviously one side. Difficult situation he was in um, as one of the coalition per. Um, Coalition Provisional Authority advisors have suggested that maybe we just weren't prepared for what we were going into. And sure, there was great uh, surveillance and, and great uh, lead up to it. But once you're on the ground and once you're really looking at what's happening after after this kind of a conflict, the question is, were we really prepared? And and I'm sure Paul Bremer will come up with a memoir very shortly and, and he'll he'll set us straight on on some of these things. Colin Powell uh, said right before the Iraq conflict began, before anything happened, he famously said to George Bush, you break Iraq, you bought it. Mm. This has uh, very much been proved to be the case. This is a big problem. This is a big problem. How long um, can people stay there? How, how much is it going to cost? Uh, psychologically, physically, uh, economically, this is, you know, hopefully this isn't true, what you just said, but it, it's looking more and more that way. Where to now for Iyad Alawi? I mean, they've announced today that Saddam Hussein's being handed over today and will right. uh, effectively be charged tomorrow. They're yeah. not mucking about, are they? Is, no, is, he, is pace an issue? It, it is. It is. This has to be done. Um, Alawi has to bring Saddam Hussein out. He has to to put him in a, in a public position so that he can show that we are doing something, that we are taking command, that that we do run the country. Iraqis run Iraq. And, and he's got a lot on stake, too, because he was, he was out of the country for, since about 1970. Uh, so he's got to, to he's really have to, has to cement his position and show that he is speaking for Iraqis. He's got four things to do. He's got economics that he has to change the situation, unemployment. He has to supply basic services. This is a really, really contentious issue. Uh, electricity, water, et cetera, across the country. Unemployment at 28% right now. Uh, security is a giant issue. Security for the common man, people who are shopping. All sorts of people are getting killed. And just, you know, as with, uh, the key word is collateral damage. Uh, those who are innocent, children, uh, mothers, uh, family members. This is this big. Uh, independent judiciary. The government has to be shown as having independence and the ability to uh, say 
what the laws are and enforce those laws. Again, why Saddam has to be put on trial, or at least the image of that happening. And and acceleration of the process of democracy. Uh, probably one of the hardest things he's going to have to do is is put that in place and make it work. Well, that's the 64,000 dirham question. Will it work? I I guess time will tell. It's been interesting the way it's been looked at around the world by various world leaders. Um, A lot of them seem pretty put out by the fact that at NATO, the summit of the allied members... Bush and Blair were the only ones that knew what was going on. They, they had that handshake, didn't they? They looked at their watches, looked at each other, shook each other's hands. Yeah. The rest of the leaders sat there and went, what? Yeah, this is a big problem. And, and NATO, this, you know, this poses just significant problems for NATO, especially as, as Afghanistan is being talked about and, and uh, Karzai saying, send in more troops. NATO, as much as it is a, a the word that's being used, is a, a, a good subcontractor for military issues. Uh, is it really a body that could intervene in these cases? Jacques Chirac is saying, we are not going to Afghanistan. We are not going to Iraq. Uh, it just is not going to happen. This is not the role of NATO. Uh, it's it, At the end of the day, uh, with what's going on in Iraq and with the coalition, it's a small club. It's a small club, and there are still people who are, are not part of this group. Well, the NATO summit provided a, a few handbags at dawn type fights between some of the leaders in the media. And we'll take a look at that in just a bit and a look at everything else in the week that was. This is Radio 2. That's Dexies on Radio 2. This is the Power Breakfast. President Bush this week was named the best dressed US president ever. We'll uh, take a look at that a wee bit later on. The week that was with James Paikua every Wednesday between 9 and 10. Uh, James, uh, the NATO summit in Istanbul in Turkey. Uh, mm. First of all, they were going to talk about Afghanistan. They are going to talk about Iraq and, uh, well, things related to that. But then, of course, the handover of power right. uh, completely gazumped everything and became yeah. the, the, the only thing to talk about. Yeah, and we're and we're not even getting the full story on that yet. Uh, but but basically, you know, a whole bunch of leaders there trumped on this. No one no one knew. It didn't leak out, which is which is interesting when you think about all the people who were there and how tight the the veil of secrecy is on what's going on in that country and what was going on. Well, yeah, I mean, effectively, from from what I've read, Bush and Blair knew, mm-hmm. and they're very very immediate. Uh, yeah. Uh, workers, but I mean, does that not say that they don't trust Germany? They don't trust France? They don't trust Russia? That that would be what one would think. Uh, there there is a lot uh, there there is a lot of of, uh, of of problems right now going on in the international community with respect to military, with respect to friendships, with respect to protocols, and probably stretching back to the invasion of Iraq and other conflicts, and who got involved. And those countries that didn't get involved, didn't put their, themselves on the line uh, directly, are still paying that price. How long are they going to pay that price for, though? I guess that's the big question. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> that's the million-dollar question. Uh, this, you know, this could be an indefinite thing. This may be uh, a change, a definite change in in the relationship, world relationships. You've got you've got the in-group, and you've got the the B-tier members who are doing other peacekeeping roles and and other things. And uh, the B-group is is out of the loop. If you look at that B group, though, you've got some massive, yeah. massive countries. The entire west of Europe, yeah. essentially. Well, and this is the big issue that that's, we start to play out, especially when you start thinking of the EU and you start thinking of those those power groups, France, Germany. Uh, 
they're, they're not involved. And I would bet they're getting steamed about this. And they're also getting more and more powerful economically. It's not yes. going to be long before the U.S. is only one of two or even three dogs on the block instead well, of the big is, dog. Right. And this is a big issue that's also being is being played out right now. Um, uh, all the faithful readers of Foreign Affairs uh, talking about uh, big editorialists this month talking about that very issue. Who are going to be the, the big dogs on the block? And, and China, uh, the Asian, Asian countries, all jumping uh, enormously with uh, with wealth and potentially with power and this could this could eclipse a lot of what's going on and this obviously pays in, plays into some of these these issues of power that uh, France uh, sorry France uh, is is questioning and that the US and Britain are both saying hey we, we still control what's going on here Jacques Chirac made an interesting speech at NATO, pretty much a, a fiery speech about mm. Bush. Uh, Bush on Monday said about Turkey that they should have a date for acceptance into yeah. the EU. He, he said that Turkey were a good, honest country and they should be within uh, EU. Now, really, that's not his place to say. He's not no. even a member of the EU. Uh, and Jacques Chirac quite rightly, I thought, po- pointed that out and said, well, that's kind of like us telling you how to deal with Mexico. Yeah, there there is really uh, a, a lot of a lot of issues between the U.S. and France. Uh, Another another nice quote that came out from uh, from Jacques Chirac it says that we're friends, we're allies, but we are not servants, and and he went on and that was in that that exchange, just you know, it, you would like to be a fly on the wall. You would really like to hear what these people are saying off of off of out of camera, off of the microphones, and uh, how they're talking to each other behind closed doors. And and clearly clearly they are not friends. It is unusual, isn't it, for someone like France and and the U.S. for them to be so, well, let's face it, openly hostile. I mean, mm. there haven't been many occasions in the last twenty years where allies have been so completely at odds with each other. Correct, correct, and and it's not getting any better. And that and it seemed like it was warming up uh, a couple months ago. They were talking a little friendlier, uh, and then at the D Day ceremonies as well, yeah, things were looking better. And suddenly, it's taken a turn for the worse yet again. Uh, you know, all I, I would suggest all going back to the original uh, UN resolutions and and going into Iraq. France said no, and uh, they're they're paying that price dearly. It seems to be only France, though. I mean, you've noticed a complete lack of mm. noise from, say, Italy, from Germany, from yeah. Spain as well, and just quietly, uh, uh, Portugal's well, they, prime minister. Even though they pulled the out, European. yes, even though uh, some countries have pulled out, they did get involved, and these countries are playing it safe. They're saying, hey, you know what? Uh, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, there's money to be had in, in the, the restructuring of the country, and they want to be involved in that. And, and Canada has has paid a little bit of a price for not getting involved, and and been told that, hey, you know what? You you will not play a role in restructuring structuring of this country and and France has been been given a similar nod that uh, that when it comes to contracts you won't be involved directly uh, the countries that were involved in in bringing some peace and order or at least getting rid of Saddam Hussein will be involved and uh, the, the scars are very deep the scars are deep well, it's obviously something that's going to be, take a while to sort out if it does get sorted out. Meanwhile, the EU is getting more and more powerful. They're mm-hmm. going to have uh, uh, more members as, as the Croatias of the world get right. voted, and Turkey, for example. Yeah, sure. Um, I thought it was quite interesting that Chirac equated Turkey with Mexico. I thought that was a bit uh, a bit harsh, perhaps. I, I can imagine that uh, he's not winning any friends anywhere right now, Jacques Chirac. <laughs> Um, Secretary of State Colin Powell has arrived in Khartoum this morning. So has Kofi Annan, the UN Secretary General. They've sent in the big guns, finally, to try and sort out what's going on in Darfur. Meanwhile, the headlines have been in the papers for, what, three months now? It's, it's all talk. This is the, this is, it's becoming, 
from my perspective, it, it reminds me of the lead up to the war. We're talking, we're talking, we're talking. It's time to act. We'll take a look at that in just a bit. This is the week that was. Phone number 600 by the way. This is Avril Lavigne. That's Avril Lavigne. It's 9.39. Expect 42 degrees today. Hot and humid nights as well. 30 degree lows and 75% humidity tonight. The week that was, uh, James Pikeaway from Zide University. Every Wednesday we take a look at the week that was. Bit of a break now. This is the last one uh, while James goes off on a regular and well-deserved break. I guess that's what it's called. Yes, back to Canada, <laughs> south of France, on the way back to the UAE. Speaking of Canada, I have to bring this up. I'm only going to do this once, all right? But uh, <laughs> earlier in the week, the Canadian general election, on the ballots was printed, do not eat this ballot. Canadians are a hungry lot. Do not eat your voting paper? Good grief. Covering all bases. Covering all bases. <laughs> Canadians always make sure that everyone is aware of what can and cannot be done. When are they very can. thorough people. Yes, very thorough. Presumably it was just below, do not bring your crocodile into the voting booth. Well, you know, but let's just touch on this really quickly. Um, the, the Canadian election, got done, it's it's finished. A lot of people not happy. A lot of people, as in around the world with elections, did not vote. Uh, they were saying this was one of the smallest, I have some stats here somewhere, one of the, the weakest turnouts ever. 60.5% of the electorate cast, electorate cast ballots, 13.5% of 22.3 million people uh, 13.5 million of 22.3 eligible voters voted. So this was this was terrible. Canadians well, are saying this was awful. 60% though. I mean, by Western standards, that's actually not a bad turnout. Oh, no, it's a great turnout. When, and if you compare and go back and look, say, at presidential elections in the U.S. and other countries, this is a great turnout. And this is the lowest, one of the lowest turnouts since 18-something or other. And this was a prohibition referendum that got less people. Wow. So, uh, but still, people are not out voting. And uh, it was an, it was an interesting election. So th- I guess the issue being they don't want people eating their ballots to voice their yeah, they, disapproval. Well, the they've, they've done the hard work and got them in there. Yeah. They're one of the 60%, so they might as well cast their votes. <laughs> yes, anyway, um, Darfur. Okay, this has been a big story mm. for the last yeah, uh, it's, couple it's of months. It's ongoing. It's continuing. We're talking at least the last two months we've sat here and, and spoken about it sometimes on air most uh, of the time off. The background, I mean, the, the UN... Uh, aid organization mm-hmm. um, has said that as many as three million people are being displaced yeah. uh, at least a million people are in danger from famine and from yes. plague and uh, it's been exacerbated by the fact that these militia are stonking around killing off refugees right and so the aid agencies cannot get in or are too too worried about going in and when they do get in uh, there there's no one around or, or people are running scared and don't know who to trust yes and questions about who else is is assisting which neighboring countries uh, there has been been whispers of Rwanda and uh, other groups having militias involved in this and of course that is is uh, denied Rwanda, of course, being where the last of these situations yes. played out in the and early 90s. Exactly. And the, the UN has to be looking at this, and, and, and the United States and other countries, NATO, in fact, has to be looking at this, saying, what do we do? Problem being, uh, sending in troops is a big issue. How do you send in troops? And then, more importantly, how do you get them get back them out, out How again? to get them out, exactly. How long will I have to stay there? What are they going to do? There's a peacekeeping uh, group there right now, really observers, uh, a very small contingent of uh, UN representatives, and and uh, they don't have the mandate to fight. 
It's interesting. Uh, today, in Khartoum, uh, Secretary of State of the United States, Colin Powell's arrived. Mm. Uh, the Secretary General of the UN, Kofi Annan, has arrived. They're sending in the big guns yeah. to do a lot of talking, but the uh, UN have already said, we're not going to send troops in. Don't be silly. No, no. Th- this, is, this is a big issue. So what exactly are they going to do? And what, what can they do? What do they want to do? Of course, there's a whole cynical side of this saying, well, there's no oil, there's no natural resources there. Why should we care? Well, it doesn't even seem like the Sudanese government care too much. Sudanese Foreign Minister Mustafa Ismail said at a news conference this morning, well, there is a problem in Darfur, but it's been exaggerated. Yes. All right. Okay, well, that's, that's, there's no famine, apparently, no epidemic, and no humanitarian well, and problem. The other problem is getting media in there to, to take a look at it, to, to report it, to put it onto the, the pages of newspapers, and there's very, very few media people there. Uh, it's a dangerous place. Uh, the other issue being that, that media representatives are spread out amongst other issues and conflicts that are going on around the world, so they're, they're, it's, and it's, it's hitting summer. Uh, this is a, just a really difficult time. And how do you get the voice out? How do you get the information out? How do you get the pictures out? To avoid, as you said, another Rwanda. Well, one of the key demands Powell has made, he's made three key demands to the um, Khartoum government this morning. Uh, he says, Sudan must rein in the Arab militia, must start negotiations with ethnic minorities in Darfur, and uh, humanitarian agencies must be given full access yeah. with observers. So this is what we're talking about. You can't, you can't just sort of hope that it's going to be looked after by that government, particularly no, exactly. if those comments can be listened yeah. to. Yeah, no, and it, I think that's probably the number one issue is, is the, on the backside, is the the humanitarian uh, aid workers who need to get in there, who need to start doing what they do, uh, getting food, getting shelter, getting medical assistance, uh, setting up schools, uh, setting up refugee camps, just basically providing the general necessities for life. And they're not doing that because they can't get in there. And to me, that would probably be where the UN and, and, and the US right now are, are trying to weigh pressure and saying, look, we've, there is money, not a lot, but there is money and it needs to be delivered in, in, in a timely and quick fashion. If you look at the statistics since the outbreak of hostilities in Iraq, uh, about 11,000 civilians have died mm-hmm. in, in Iraq. Uh, since February last year in Darfur, at least 10,000 have died there. Yeah. So it's a similar scale. Yeah, the numbers are staggering. The numbers are staggering and, and they're just not being reported. I think when you, when you put it into perspective and people look at this, uh, the average folks, you and I, look at this. It it you it can't help but affect you. Although, this is the other side of the the story when we talk about media is that whole desensitization. And so we hear ten thousand people, or, or or worse, you hear all you know two hundred people died in a family. You say, oh, only two hundred? That's not very many. Yeah, it's just a plane crash. Yeah. Ten thousand people there. Ten thousand people here. Oh, that's not too many. Uh, until you can put faces on it or you, you start saying, well, this is, you know, 10,000 people is the size of the village that I come from or the town that I come from or, you know, 10,000 people, it, it starts to make sense when it's one of your neighbors or a friend or someone you know and, and that changes everything. But it's it's getting getting this message out and uh, before it's too late. Bob Geldof, come back. Your time is now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is, this is a live aid thing is needed again. Paul Simon up next on Radio 2. This is the week that was. James Pikeway from Zion University and uh, joins me every Wednesday. Uh, you are also welcome to make your comments. Power Breakfast at Hotmail's my email address. We'll wrap up some of the smaller stories from around the world next. That's Paul Simon, 9.53. I'll have news for you at 10 o'clock. Then Tanya's got lifestyle. Uh, taking a look this afternoon at travel and uh, the summer getaways that you want to be on. More on that a wee bit later on on Lifestyle with Tanya Burgess. Uh, well, the week that was with James Pike away, and um, 
just about our lot for the week, but obviously there have been more than just the smaller, the big stories. Mm. The smaller stories have snuck in there. Uh, George W. Bush. Now, I know I pick on Bush, President Bush a lot, but uh, this one really jumped out at me. He was in Ireland for a, a summit there, staying at a castle, Dolomode Castle. He got photographed in his mm. vest, pulling, pulling the curtains to go to bed. Yeah. He then turns around and bans uh, media, including the television and the newspapers, from publishing the photo. Yeah. Image is everything, Schroeder. Yeah, but, but how can he do that? He's, this is the country try. from free speech. Yeah. <laughs> you can try. Anyone can try. I mean, take it just for a second. Consider all of the images you've seen of President George Bush Jr. What have you seen? You've seen him. Uh, he, he's fat, he dresses very well. Suits. You see him in his designer uh, polo shirts. You see him in his button-up shirts. Or on the farm in his denim and denim. And denim and denim. But the image is very, very important. If he has learned nothing from Ronald Reagan... He's learned that image is everything. That was amazing, though. I mean, uh, the US TV networks, NBC, mm. uh, CBS, they all said, OK, oh, we won't do that. Sky yeah. News and the BBC in England, OK, we won't show yeah. it. The only papers that published this photo, the Star on Sunday and Ireland on Sunday, along with editorials saying, well, you can't stop us, it mm. wasn't that big a deal. It was just a picture of him in a T-shirt. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it could go back in, in, a, in a way to how the picture was obtained, uh, a private moment. Uh, privacy is privacy. Uh, is it worth showing? What's what are we gaining from it? What, you know, this is a, a as a man who is who they need to have some downtime. The politicians and so give him his downtime. Oh, I, I quite agree with that. It's it's uh, just that that censorship thing that really <laughs> sticks in my craw. I couldn't quite believe <laughs> well, that. Well, I mean, of course, everyone could have published it if they wanted to. So they're they're exercising some self restraint uh, if if they want. I mean, it opens up the door. I, I suppose that anyone, uh, if it was you or I, and and someone decided they wanted to have a picture like this, I can't imagine why they'd want a picture of you or I. But if no. they wanted to, and we said no, please don't. Um, they, at least they might consider it. You would hope that they you would. would hope, fair enough. Uh, interesting uh, interview in the Time magazine this week. Bill Clinton mm. uh, on George Bush, amongst other yeah. things. Uh, he, he says at some point, well, let's be fair here. If you'd been president, you'd think, well, this fellow bin Laden just turned these three airplanes into weapons of mass destruction. So you're sitting there as president, you're reading in the aftermath, so yeah, you're going to go get them, you're going to go into Afghanistan, and you're probably going to go into Iraq and try and find those weapons. Mm. Uh, Clinton, in effect, uh, in a very, very circuitous route, said that Bush was pretty much right to do what he did, but wrong at the wrong time. Yeah, timing is everything, of course. Um, but looking at it, I can't imagine that any of the former presidents who are watching what George Bush is doing today are saying, would we have done anything differently? It, something had to be done. Action had to be taken. Or even it, John Kerry, the, exactly. the challenger, has yeah. said, well, no, I can't dispute and, anything. Exactly. And, what, and John Kerry said, well, what would I change? He would do very, very small changes in the veneer of what's happening. Uh, major changes wouldn't come about. Why? Because the, 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 the path that has to be followed is, is, is set out. It has to be done. Uh, I, it's, it's an interesting situation uh, looking at what Clinton, Bill Clinton was saying and, and the, the stance that he was taking and, and clearly what is being done and the way presidents look at each other. Uh, he obviously has some insight into what is going on. There's also no one nicer than a former president. There's no point getting anyone's back up anymore. You're, you're out of the game. 
I suppose. I suppose. And you could always come back and, and do something such as uh, Jimmy Carter with humanitarian aid. And, and you want to maintain some objectivity so that you can maybe be someone who can help out in, in a situation such as Afghanistan. Maybe Clinton will be the person to go in and help broker some kind of uh, an agreement there. Uh, the other thing that made the headlines this week, I guess, uh, Michael Moore's new documentary movie went straight to number one at the U.S. box office. Yeah. Uh, despite uh, giving, being given an R rating, uh, Fahrenheit 9-11 mm. took 22 million bucks at the box office, a record for a documentary, and uh, in an election year, or well, that yeah. might, might yet have quite an influence. Well, I, I wonder about that. Christian Science Monitor is suggesting that, you know, at the end of the day, who's going to go see this movie? And if, with the undecided voters, what are we talking about? And they're suggesting in polls that, that they're quoting that uh, maybe 1% of the electorate will be swayed. By, by Michael Moore's movie, which, though, in the case of, of the presidential elections... Would have turned the last one. Well, it could be a lot of people. Uh, very, very weak numbers uh, with respect to turnout in, in that, those elections. Uh, I think what's it's more interesting when we talk about Michael Moore and even Bill Clinton is that both of these uh, gentlemen have got... Uh, uh, materials out there. The film obviously is the the, the greatest op-ed piece that's being used right now on, on the Bush administration. And it's really overshadowing what both Kerry and, and what Bush did on Wednesday. Uh, nice nice piece here that Senator John Kerry, no one noticed that uh, the Democratic challenger for the presidency flew 3,910 miles on Tuesday to cast a vote in Washington on veterans health care and then didn't get to vote after all because of procedural delays. Or that Bush delivered a major speech on AIDS in Philadelphia on Wednesday neither of which were reported. And these are these are very significant things. In an election year, these guys like to get as much as they can, which is the mm-hmm. main reason they're so annoyed with yeah. Clinton and Michael Moore. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the week that was takes a break for a couple of weeks now. James is off for a well-deserved break. And thanks for your time once again, James. Thank you, and, Shorter. Uh, we'll see you in a few weeks. Enjoy your holiday. Great, bye. And there you go. That is the start of remembering Dubai with Nightline, literally how I got my start here in the UAE. We have got years of shows to share with you. It's going to be a lot of fun. I got to thank archesaudio.com for the music. And of course, thank you for listening. www.thejamescast.com if you want to find out more and drop me a line, james at the jamescast or follow me on the socials and tag me. The James Cast. It's been a lot of fun. Share the link and talk to you again soon.